uh, here's what we're talking about today. We are talking about how you respond to someone and what it feels like when someone talks about their faith and it comes across like a piece of unsolicited advice. We are currently in a series called Elephants, the questions we can't ignore. And for a lot of people, there are some big questions that stand between them and Jesus. The person might be spiritually curious, might be an admirer of Jesus, they might want what Jesus is offering, but for them, there, there's this kind of knockout blow that sort of prevents them from even considering the Christian faith. And some of these questions are not just questions that people on the outside of the Christian faith wonder about. They're also questions that people on the inside, committed followers of Christ, wonder about. They're the kinds of questions that keep people from really trusting Scripture, that drive people away from Christian community, that that undermine our confidence in God. And a lot of times when people have these sorts of questions, it's really easy to just kind of ignore them, push them to the side, because we're worried, you know, if we dig too deeply in this, maybe we won't find an answer to the question. Or maybe we won't like the answer that we find, and so we just kind of hope that they go away. Well, here at Christ Community Church, we think that that kind of approach, ignoring these kinds of questions, is both intellectually dishonest and potentially spiritually dangerous. And that's the reason why we're spending this summer tackling some of these tough questions, the elephants in the room. So here's our question for today. Why can't Christians keep their views to themselves? And this one is less of kind of an intellectual objection to what Christians believe and more of a complaint about how Christians behave. People won't consider Christianity because they look around them and they, they think, well, I don't really like and I, I don't want to be like some of those kind of uh, pushy, obnoxious religious folks that I've encountered. And this question usually comes up kind of in two different contexts. Sometimes it's because they've encountered Christians who are trying to evangelize, trying to share their faith, actively persuading people to become followers of Jesus. So maybe you've got this coworker who keeps inviting you to her church, or there's that guy outside the coffee shop and he's passing out pamphlets, or your uncle corners you at your family barbecue and says, you know, the heat of that grill is nothing compared to the fires of hell, and you're like, ugh. <laughs> like, you, you see these people and you're like, well, why, why can't you just leave me alone? Like, I, I'm not telling you what I think, I didn't ask what you think, like, can't we just, you know, talk about the weather or the Cubs or something? The, the other arena where this comes up is in the realm of public issues. And usually what this means is politics. And this is where it gets really ugly. You got Christian pastors and leaders who are endorsing candidates, not just saying, hey, this is personally who I'm gonna vote for, but saying all Christians should vote like this, all people should vote like this. Or or Christians who are lobbying for laws that enforce, uh, enforce our view of morality on society, even though there's lots of people who don't share our moral code. Or are Christians trying to defend a privileged place for Christianity in our culture. And you see this, and it makes you just want to shout, you know, like, hey, you're not the only ones who live in this country. Like, there are other people who don't think like you do. And so the question comes up, why can't you keep your views to yourself? Let us explore that question today. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture in in 1 Peter chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me. This book is actually a letter written by Peter. Uh, Peter is one of the first followers of Jesus and actually one of Jesus' best friends during his life. Peter became uh, an important leader in the early Christian movement, uh, and this letter is from him to a group of Christ followers who are living in an area where they're definitely a minority, uh, where there's not a lot of them, and uh, they're living out their faith pretty publicly, they're talking to people about what they believe, and they're receiving a lot of pushback. Uh, They're not being outright persecuted yet, but they're being insulted and ostracized and mistreated by people, and so Peter's saying, here, let me guide you in how to respond to that. So let's read what he says, starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you be like-minded, sympathetic, love one another, 
be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil for evil or insult for insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But, but even if you should suffer for what's right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it's God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Now, I know that some of you here are skeptical about the Bible, but many of us here believe that these are actually God's words, God's speaking uh, through human words. And if that's true, this is an incredible gift. And so we like to thank God for that. So let's do that. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, if you are wondering about the Bible and whether or not it's reliable, I would uh, say again, uh, you should definitely be here next week when Jay Warner Wallace is here. Uh, he's got a great personal story of how uh, he was an atheist who convinced himself that this was uh, actually true by using his detective skills. Uh, and because he investigated the Bible so closely, uh, he's actually a great person to share why the Bible is actually reliable. He's going to do a great job with that. So if that's a question that you have or a question a friend has, highly encourage you uh, to be here or to invite a friend along. Well, to tackle this question, why can't you keep your views to yourself? What I want to do is look at three different objections that people make uh, to Christians talking about their faith in public. Uh, here are the three reasons why Christians should uh, keep their views to themselves. Because one, faith is private, society is pluralistic, and Christians are pushy. We're going to address each one in turn. Here's the first one. Faith is private. Uh, isn't that what faith is? It's a, it's a private matter. Now, for most people, this is kind of an obvious thing. It's kind of in the definition of faith, right? You know, like you can think of the world as divided into two halves. You've got the, the public sphere and the private sphere. And in the public sphere, you've got things like your work and politics and the marketplace. And in the private sphere, you've got things like your home, uh, your family, your, your, what you do with your leisure time. And so the question is, which, which side of the line does faith fall into? And a lot of people don't even think twice. They say, well, this is obviously a private matter. Now, it doesn't mean that faith doesn't really happen in public, that it's not always visible, like there are church buildings and there are organizations and groups of people. But the, the point of it all is that it's a matter of the heart, right? It's, it's a matter of your inner life. That's what counts. And so you can engage on that on your own time, in your own space, in your own way. Kind of like being a vegetarian or a Sox fan. It, it's, <laughs> you, you know what kind of crowd this is. All right. It's something that you choose to do and other people know about it, but it's not something that dramatically changes every aspect of your life and you're not pushing it on other people. It's not that there's anything wrong with being religious. In fact, for a lot of people, that's a good thing. 
Uh, your spirituality is there to inspire you to be a better person. It, it gives you strength in hard times. And, you know, if, if you love Jesus, then good for you. If you want to submit to Allah, then good for you. If you're working off your karma, then that's great. Like, whatever works for you is fine. Just keep it on your own time and in your own space. Nothing wrong with that. It's a private matter. But is that the case? I, I can't speak for other religions, but I want to ask the question. Is that the case? Is that what Christianity actually teaches? Because I've heard a lot of people kind of say this. They say, well, isn't that what Jesus was getting at? Like, he said all this stuff about, you know, don't show off your religiosity in public. Like, don't, you know, do all that stuff out there. And don't judge other people. And don't be a hypocrite. And the, the point he was making was, you know, it's a, it's a matter of the heart. It's what's in here that counts, not just what's out here, right? Like, that's, that's what his message was. Well, if that's what his message was, I got a question. Why did they kill him? Like, seriously, if Jesus was saying this is about a personal, private connection between you and God and something that helps you love other people, and that's all he was saying, where's the threat in that? And in the passage that we just read, like, in 1 Peter, why are people mistreating Christ followers? If it's just a, a personal, private thing, what are the, what's to mess with? When scholars classify different kinds of religions and philosophies, uh, sometimes they'll use these two categories. They'll talk about mystical religions and prophetic religions. And the goal of a mystical religion is this. It's to have an encounter with God that draws you out of the world. It takes you out of the ordinary day-to-day -day life. It puts you into a higher plane, a different part of existence. It's to get you out of the, the, the suffering and the difficulty and the day-to-day -day grind of things and, and have a deeper encounter with God. Prophetic religions are, are, are the reverse direction. When you encounter God, he sends you back into the world uh, to go out into the world, to shape the world, and to uh, uh, speak God's message into the world, and to address problems and shape culture and community. So in mystical religions, the direction is from the world to God. In prophetic religions, the direction people move is from God into the world. Now, here's the problem. In our culture, we want to treat Christianity and most other religions as if it were a mystical religion. It's basically about a personal, private encounter with God and mostly concerned with kind of otherworldly things. The thing is, most people like mystics, or at least they don't mind mystics. You know, it could be cool to encounter like the monk up on the mountaintop and he utters these mysterious sayings of wisdom. You know, you might not want to take on their lifestyle, but you kind of admire the serenity and the peace and all that. And if you're not interested in what they say, they're easy to ignore, you know? Uh, for lots of people, that's what they kind of want in religion. So a little inspiration, something that, you know, gives you some grounding, keeps you centered, uh, but it's kind of off to the side. It's a mystical religion. But prophets, nobody likes prophets. At least not when they're around, you know? Uh, people, they say, you know, I just wish God would show up. He would tell me what he wants. He would speak. If he's really there, why doesn't he send us a message? But do we really want that? Like, isn't there a chance that God might look at the world and look at our lives and say, you know, there's some things here that really need to change. That's what prophetic religions do. They say something's wrong with the world and we need to fix it. And that's the reason people kill prophets. Because we all say, you know, I'd love to be a better person. I'd love for the world to be a better place. But when we actually see what kind of change that's going to take, it's incredibly threatening to us. And so we fight back. I mean, think about what Jesus came to do. He came to free us from our addiction to ourself. He, he came to expose our guilt and then forgive our sin. He, he came to draw the poison of evil right out of our hearts. He, he came to turn people who are enemies into friends. He came to turn opposites into family. He came to bring justice where there was injustice. He came to cure death. He, he came to weave back together all the broken pieces of the world. 
He's doing a total renovation of everything. Now, you might not believe that he actually did that, but that's what Jesus claimed to be doing. And if those things are true, it's a dramatic change. If you believe those things are true, it's not just going to change your private lives. It's going to change everything. It's going to have a ripple effect through your relationships and through society and through cultures. Jesus is a threat to the status quo, and that's the reason the status quo killed him. He wasn't telling people how to get out of the world to God. He was saying, I'm God entering right into your world. He didn't teach his followers, you know, pray, let us go to your kingdom in heaven. He said, pray, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So Christianity has some mystical elements here and there, but it's primarily a prophetic religion. For Christianity to be what it is, it cannot just be a private faith. It's got to be a public one. Now, you might hear that and say, okay, well, that's my problem. Like, I don't want it to be a public faith. That's why I don't like Christianity. I'm okay with, you know, private spirituality. That's all good. But like this public in-your-face religion, I've had enough of that. Here's a question I want you to consider. Would it actually be better to have purely private faith? It might be simpler, but would it be better? Because I try to listen to people's complaints about Christianity, and I try to take them really seriously. And all the time I hear people saying things like, you know, why do Christians tolerate all these problems in society? Like, if it were true, Christianity would be a force for good in the world. What, why, why aren't they standing up against all of this injustice? And I hear that, and I think, well, which is it? Is Christianity a private matter between you and God, or is it supposed to be a force for good in the world? And what most people do is they just kind of pick and choose depending on whether or not Jesus agrees with them on the issue. Uh, Look at how uh, politicians do this on both the right and the left. If it supports their cause, they say, Christianity is a force for good. Or if it challenges them, they say, well, that's just a private matter. If Christianity, though, were purely a private matter, it might actually be a force for evil. Because it it might make people say, you know, I know the world's full of injustice, but this world's not my home. Or, or, you know, I know that you might be suffering now, but at least you're going to a better place. So I don't have to do much about that. A a purely private faith wouldn't motivate you to take action, and it might give you excuses for inaction. Either Christianity is a public faith or it's not much good. And and this is where it bumps up into the second objection that people have about Christ followers bringing their views into the public square. Because the the problem is society is pluralistic. Think about this. In in the past, it was easier for an entire community to basically share the same uh, religious perspective. Like like in this country, it used to be that in many places, the the religious diversity consisted of a handful of different Christian groups and maybe a small group of Jews. You might know that in other places, there, there are people who believe differently, maybe in other parts of the world, but in your local community, it might be hard to find someone who didn't think that Jesus was God or at least that if they were going to believe in God, he would be the God that they would believe in. And that made it easier to appeal to a kind of a, a, a shared moral framework. But today, because of global travel, because of communication, that's not really possible anymore. When I was in high school, I had good friends from every major world religion. I had a good friend who was a Hindu, I had friends who were Muslims, I had lots of friends who were Jewish, I had uh, Buddhist friends, I knew atheists and agnostics, I had a friend who was a Wiccan, I knew Mormons, of course I knew lots of different kind of Protestant believers, I knew Catholics, and this was 20 years ago, and it was in Glen Ellen, and I don't know if you've been to Glen Ellen, but it's not like a bastion of diversity, you know? (laughs) It has been a long time since you could appeal to the basic Judeo-Christian worldview and assume that other people would see things basically in that way. 
We live in a pluralistic world. And that means that different groups end up drawing on different moral frameworks. So you have one person who says, you know, I, I think shops should be closed on the Sabbath because I'm an Orthodox Jew. Or another person who says, I, I think we should ban images of Muhammad because I'm a Muslim. Another person says, well, I, I oppose abortion because the Bible says that life begins at conception. People look at that and say, well, I, I don't share your framework. And you end up with this argument where it goes, well, my religion says this, and they say, my religion says that. And how do you resolve that if you can't persuade someone to join your faith? So it's a challenge. And so a lot of people look at that situation, they say, okay, well, let's just do this. Let's not bring religion into the public square. It doesn't belong there because we can't, you know, agree on it. So religion stays out of public life. And instead what we do is we say, okay, let's just ask the question, what's going to be the best for everybody involved? Like, like, let's just look at problems in society, but poverty or education or, or whatever, and say, what's going to work here? Let's just be really pragmatic about it. And at first that sounds like, well, that, that might work, but when you dig into it, it's, it's tricky, because I'm not sure it actually avoids the issue of religion. Here's why I say that. In order to figure out what's going to work, you first have to ask, what's your goal? Okay, so if a neighbor of yours comes and knocks on your door and says, okay, I'm doing a house project and I, I don't have the right tool. Could I borrow one of your tools? You say, oh, of course, I'll lend you whatever you need. So what, what do you want? He says, well, I don't really know what the right tool would be. I was hoping you could recommend what you think would work. Next question you ask, well, what's the project? What are you trying to accomplish? Because you're either going to hand him a, a voltmeter or a sledgehammer or a, a propane torch, depending on the thing, but you've you got to know what he's trying to do first. If you don't know the destination, you don't know the route to get there. So when someone says, well, let's just figure out how to improve the lives of people. What's going to work for this? You first got to ask, well, what do you mean by improvement in a person's life? Because when you ask that question, all of a sudden you're asking these big questions like, well, what really leads to happiness? Like, what, what should it look like for human beings to flourish? What actually counts as the good life? And as soon as you start asking those questions, it gets deeper and deeper because you start saying, well, what are human beings? Uh, why are we here? Where do we come from? What, what's our purpose? What is ultimately valuable? And, and even if someone says, well, I'm not religious, I'm, I'm, I'm an atheist, I'm an agnostic, they've still, still got to answer those questions, even if they don't think about them as religious questions. But they're questions about ultimate things, and that's what religion addresses. So what that means is we can act like we've excluded religion from the public square, but we kind of fool ourselves because the ultimate questions lie behind all of the pragmatic ones. So if I propose an education policy for our school district, or I make a strategy to increase diversity in hiring in our company, or I support a tax policy that incentivizes certain things and penalizes certain things, You've got to ask, okay, well, why do you want that policy? And to answer that question, I've got to say, well, let me tell you the kind of world I want to live in. Let, let me tell you the kind of community I hope for. Let me tell you what I think is valuable. You've got to paint a picture of the good life. And how do you know what the good life is? You draw on your religious philosophical framework. What this doesn't mean, though, is that you've got to talk about theology and religion in every conversation about policy. Uh, what it does mean, though, is that people with different faith commitments should be allowed to say something like, you know, because I'm a Mormon, I really value this. Here's why. Or, or, or because I'm a Muslim, or because I'm a, a Buddhist, or, or because I'm a follower of Jesus, these are the things that are important to me. Uh, my vision of what would be good for, for people and society comes from my core beliefs about the nature of the world and God. Otherwise, what we're doing is we're telling people that they're not allowed to bring something really fundamental to who they are into the, the conversations. And we wouldn't say that to someone about their culture or their ethnicity or their gender. 
Those things are relevant factors in how you see the world. And so we say that that's a factor in the conversation. To, to say to a Christian, don't bring up your faith, is to say, don't bring up the real reason you see things the way you do or care about the things you care about. Whether we like it or not, religion is a part of public life because people are part of public life. Now, some of you may be thinking, okay, so you're telling me when I turn on the news and I see those Christians talking about politics the way they do, and there are some things that people say and people do that, like, honestly, I just kind of throw up in my mouth a little bit when I see that. It's, it's awful. You're saying that's a good thing? These days, this is kind of the biggest area where, as followers of Christ, our, our, our reputation has been tarnished. It's, it's really ugly. So I want to make something really clear about our approach to politics. And this is the main idea. When we approach politics, the Bible gives us a lot of why, but not a lot of how. A lot of why, but not a lot of how. Let me unpack that, okay? The, the Bible gives us lots of values, a picture of the good life, but it doesn't give us a list of specific policies. God doesn't give us a blueprint for a Christian version of the government. The Bible says things like this, seek justice for the poor and the oppressed. That's a biblical value that gets repeated over and over again. And it should be one of the goals that factors into the causes and candidates that we support. But the Bible doesn't say, okay, well, here's the kind of tax code or healthcare policy or social safety net that you should use to get there. It's up to us to use the wisdom God's given us to figure that sort of thing out. So the Bible gives us a lot of why, but not a lot of how. You could ask five different Christ followers, why do you hold the views that you do? And they all say, well, because we want to seek justice for the poor and the oppressed. But you say, how are you going to get there? And they give you five different answers. And this means there are lots of areas in the world of politics where Christians can disagree, and there's nothing wrong with that. Think about it this way. There are times when my wife and I are leaving from the same destination, but we're in two cars. It happens a lot when we're here at church. We actually live on the other side of the river from church, and so there are a few different bridges that you can use to get to our house. And sometimes what will happen is we'll be driving together, and we'll get to a certain intersection, and my wife will go one way, and I'll go the other way, and the race is on, you know? <laughs> And, and, and you're, you're going and you're like, okay, I'm getting, I think this is going to be better at this time of day and whatever. And you're going a little faster than you're supposed to. And it's like, and even the kids, I never explained this to them, but they're like, are we going to beat mom? It's like, yes, we are, you know? <laughs> Here's the thing. Sometimes uh, I, my route is the, the worst route. It's slower and she gets there first. Sometimes she runs into traffic. We have different ideas of what's going to work and one of us is going to uh, do better than the other. But here's the thing. We're both going to home. We should be hesitant to label any particular policy or party or politician as the Christian option. Uh, biblical values do not line up neatly with the contemporary political choices we've been given. Uh, let me tell you something that happens frequently around here. Uh, if Jim or I comes up, uh, come up and in a sermon we mention the topic of refugees or racism, without fail, that week we get comments or emails saying, you guys are getting so liberal. If we stand up here and we mention abortion or sexuality, Without fail, we get comments and emails that say, you're getting so conservative. And here's the thing. We don't talk about those things because we want to support a particular political agenda. Uh, we're not saying anything about who you should vote for or what you should support. What we're saying is, as a Christ follower, these are things that you should care about because Jesus cares about them. We're saying it needs to be a part of your why, but we're not going to tell you the specific how. We're going to pick a picture of the destination, but not tell you the route to get there, knowing that different people in our church are going to disagree about the best route. This is why when you meet someone who says, I'm a Christian, you should not assume that you know their politics. It's why Christ followers shouldn't feel completely at home in any political party. 
It's why you should have reservations for any candidate you vote for. Because even if you like them, none of them are Jesus. They've always got problems. And there are going to be times when the options we are given, we're going to have to say, I don't like any of those. I've got to reject all the options. The Bible talks about Christians as strangers and exiles in a foreign land. And that means if we don't feel out of place sometimes with the politics of our world, then we're doing it wrong. Here's the biggest thing that we've got to remember. We should not, if we're a follower of Jesus, we should not put our hope in political power. We shouldn't assume that we're going to have political influence, and we shouldn't be afraid when we lose political influence. For one thing, there's a lot more ways to influence society. Christians should be making good art and telling good stories. We should be starting and shaping businesses. We should be doing good science and research. We should be academics. We should be engaged in community organizations. We should be building relationships across lines of difference. Politics is not the only game in town. And it's worth remembering, too, that in the eras when Christianity has been most effective, when we've shined our brightest, it's often when Christians don't have much political influence. I mean, think about the folks that Peter is writing to here. Uh, they're uh, Christians in the Roman Empire. The, the empire had uh, paganism as the official religion, uh, and, and they were actually suspicious of Christians. But within a decade of when this letter was written, uh, they're going to be killing Christians, including Peter himself. And, and nowhere in this letter, and nowhere in the rest of the New Testament, does anybody say, you know, we really should try to get you know, like a Christian on the throne. That would be really helpful. And, and the biblical authors are, are not anxious about having political influence. In part, because that wasn't particularly realistic in their culture, but even more because it's just not the biggest deal for Christians. We are supposed to and eager to bring our perspective into public conversations. That's good, including politics. But that's not where our hope lies. Our hope lies in Jesus and his coming kingdom. And the reason I say all this is I think that if we remembered this, if we took this to heart, the way we interacted with with politics would change and then the world around us would look at us and not be so uh, frustrated uh, with the way that we do that. So, so how do we do this? How do we actually bring our faith into public knowing that we're in a, a pluralistic society? How, how do we do that in a way that's civil? Because uh, this is the final complaint that people have about Christians sharing their, their views. They say, Christians are just too pushy. Uh, the problem isn't what Christians are saying, it's how we are saying it. And for this objection, I want to first address those of you who are not Christ followers. The first thing is this. I, I, I want to say sorry. If you've encountered a rude, pushy Christian who has not treated you with respect, that's wrong. That's not how it's supposed to be. That's not how Jesus said to share his message. Jesus himself was, was really bold when he talked to people. He didn't avoid hard issues. But he always approached people right where they were at. He asked questions and he listened and he was kind and he never went on a Facebook rant. In the Bible, the only stories we have where Jesus is actually arguing with someone, it's always with religious people who should have known better and are acting like hypocrites. So if one of Jesus' followers has treated you poorly, they're not representing Jesus well and I'm sorry for that. I do want to challenge you a little bit though. Because if it bothers you when someone tries to talk about their faith with you, uh, you know, sometimes it's not because the person is being pushy. Uh, Sometimes they're not actually being rude or mistreating you. Sometimes it's simply the topic that makes you uncomfortable. Uh, In our society, we don't have a lot of practice in in having, you know, civil conversations about these big things that we disagree about. And and sometimes it's just the topic of God that kind of raises our blood pressure. And so we feel like the person is, is really pushing us. Here's the thing, though. I I probably know more Christians than you do. I'm, like, always surrounded by them somehow. Um, And I can tell you this. Most Christ followers 
are actually pretty chill when they talk about God. Like, it's a minority of Christians who are annoying, and they are the ones who draw all of the attention. It's sort of like when you bring your girlfriend for the first time over to a family dinner, your obnoxious cousin shows up, and you're like, oh, no, you know? Like, she's going to meet him, and he's going to say something offensive, and she's going to walk away, and that's all she's going to be able to think about, and she's not going to realize the rest of my family are are just amazing, wonderful, gracious people. We kind of feel that way about the loudmouths Christians, you know? It's like, they're family, but we're a little afraid of being lumped in with them. And that's the reason why most of us, we don't even bring up God, even though we think we should, and even when we have natural opportunities to do so. So here, here's what I'd like you to do. Uh, if you aren't, even if you're not convinced that Christianity is true, I'd like you to reframe in your own mind the situation when someone tries to tell you about Jesus. Here, here's what you should remember. Remember that the person talking to you is probably really nervous about how you're going to react. They've probably had to work up the nerve to even broach the topic. And they're, they're hoping that this conversation isn't going to hurt your future relationship with them. And here's the big one. The reason they even said something about Jesus is because they love you. Seriously. They, they wouldn't have done it if they didn't think that you mattered. Think about it. You, you don't want to share your most cherished beliefs and then have someone reject that. That hurts. But you're willing to take that risk because you think it's a life and death message. It's something you've got to hear. And I love you enough, I want to tell you about it. You ever seen the, the magic act Pen and Teller? Uh, comedians who are illusionists. Uh, one doesn't talk at all. One talks a whole lot. Uh, they're atheists, actually, uh, and they're, they're pretty uh, outspoken uh, about their views. Uh, a few years ago, Penn, uh, Penn Gillette from the one half of the duo, he actually posted a video on his YouTube channel uh, telling a story about a man uh, who waited after one of their shows to actually give a Bible to him. Now, Penn was not convinced to become a follower of Jesus because of this guy, but he did share some of his thoughts about that encounter, uh, and I want to read part of what he said here. He, he said, I've always said, I don't respect people who don't proselytize, who don't share their faith. I don't, I don't respect that at all. If you believe there's a heaven and hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? Like, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? If I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point that I tackle you. And this is way more important than that. This guy who came and talked to him was a really good guy. He was polite, honest, and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a Bible. That's a really interesting perspective, isn't it? And I think it's a helpful one. If you've got a friend who keeps awkwardly bringing up Jesus, uh, the next time it happens to you, don't think, oh, no, not this again. Think, wow, like, this person actually cares a lot about me. And, and I know this is a big deal to them, and it took courage for them to talk about this and respond to them with the respect that that deserves. Now, let, let me talk to the Christ followers here, okay? Uh, we'll have a little family conversation, and the rest of you, you're welcome to listen in. Okay, here's the deal. We have been given an incredible privilege of representing Jesus to the world. It's amazing. We've got the best news ever to deliver, and we know. But it's precisely because of how important this job is that we should periodically be asking, well, how are we doing? Because if it feels to the people around us like we're being really pushy and abrasive, we should ask, well, why is that? We should ask, you know, are we presenting Jesus in a way that's really off-putting to people? Because if there's something we can do about that, that would be great. Here's my thought about the problem. 
I think the problem is not that there are too many pushy Christ followers out there sharing their faith in, in really obnoxious ways. I think the problem is that most of us aren't talking about Jesus at all. And the people who are actually bold enough to do what Jesus asked us to do, a lot of them are the sort of folks who don't really care much about what other people think, and that's the reason why sometimes they rub people the wrong way. You know how you solve this problem? The rest of us need to start sharing our faith more. Think about it like this, okay. Say you've got a, a, a choir of people, a hundred people in this choir, and they're singing this song. But only 10 people in the choir are singing. The other 90 are, are just mouthing the words. And of those 10 people who are singing, half of them are tone deaf. Is that going to sound any good? Not really, okay. Uh, what do you do to solve that problem? Well, the simplest way to do it is for the other 90 people who can carry a tune to actually sing out loud enough for people to hear. Because before long, the tone deaf people, they're not going to be that noticeable. And, and you know what? It might actually help them stay on tune better. So if we've got a reputation as Christ followers for being obnoxious evangelists, the solution is not less evangelists. The solution is more winsome and gracious evangelists. Let's look at the passage in 1 Peter again. In this passage, Peter is basically saying, you know, there's going to be a lot of people who don't like your message, but do not give them an excuse to complain about your behavior. Look at verse 9. He says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. He's saying, when you're interacting with people, no matter how they respond to you, this is always your goal. Try and bless them. Think of it this way. You're, you're trying to win people, not win a fight. It's really easy. When someone disagrees with you and the conversation starts to escalate and it gets uh, heated and the argument's more intense, like, you know that feeling? Like, when that happens, we might not even notice it, but our motivation in the conversation can change. It goes from uh, talking about Jesus because we, we want to share this incredible gift with someone to, I feel attacked, and now I need to prove that I'm right, and they're wrong. And, and that, when that feeling comes up in us, that's when things start to happen. We start to repay insult for insult. Th this is especially the case when you're not face-to-face. -face. Uh, disagreements over text message almost never go well. Uh, if you can't see someone's body language, it's a lot easier for you to say something that's hurtful. Uh, in social media, it's even worse. Because not only are you not face-to-face -face with the person, but you're actually being witnessed by a whole bunch of other people. And so it heightens the pressure for you to feel like I gotta prove my point and make sure that I'm heard because I gotta save face, not just in front of this person, but in front of all these people too. And it's not that you don't ever wanna to try to persuade someone about Jesus. It's not that the conversation's never gonna get vigorous. The problem is when it starts to feel like you're fighting against them rather than for them. Our goal is always to bless people, not just win a fight. How do we do that though? We do it by being reasonable. Look at verse 15. It says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. We, we need to be reasonable when we talk to people. We need to give good, thoughtful explanations for why we believe what we do. This doesn't mean you get cold and logical like Mr. Spock or something like this. Uh, you don't have to sound like a philosophy professor. Uh, what it means is you can't just act like it should be obvious uh, for someone to see your perspective. Like, you might need to help people see why something makes sense to you. Here's the most important thing to remember when you're trying to do this. The most important thing you can do is take what the other person says seriously. So if someone says, okay, here, here's why I think you're wrong, pause and ask yourself, do they have a good point? And you should assume that they actually do have a good point. 
Assume that they're raising a question that needs to be addressed. Or at the very least, assume that it feels like a good point to them. Ask yourself, why do they find this convincing? What's compelling to them about this position? See if you can actually express back to them what they're trying to say in your own words in such a way that they would say, yeah, that that is actually what I think. You you said it really well. Here's why this is important. Because if you can't sympathize with someone else's way of thinking, then your responses are always going to be dismissive and shallow, even if you don't mean them to be that way. They're going to come across that way. That being reasonable means you take them seriously. You don't act like uh, what you think should be obvious to them, because if it were obvious, they'd already agree with you. Verse 15, Peter says this, you should do this with gentleness and respect. Wouldn't it be amazing? Wouldn't it be amazing? What would it be like if Christians had the reputation for communicating with gentleness? What if that's what people said about us? I think that would help a whole lot. I mean, the most moving poetry in the world is really annoying if someone screams it in your ear. The most beautiful song in the world is hard to listen to if you've got to play it on full blast. We don't expect people to like what we have to say all the time. In fact, we expect people to dislike our message. But there's no reason they should reject the message because we've made it unbearable to listen to. And what I think is that as Christ followers, we should actually be really good at doing this. I know we're not always, but we should be good. And here's why. Look at verse 18. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. This right here is our most central belief, right? The, the, the thing that we think is most important in the world is this, uh, that the most important event in history is when someone willingly sacrificed himself in order to love people who disagreed with him. Think about it. When Jesus went to the cross, it looked like he lost an argument, like his perspective had been defeated in the public square. But at that very moment, he, he was still choosing to give himself for the sake of other people to meet their needs, even as they rejected him. A lot of people are really worried that if we bring religious beliefs into the public square, it's just going to lead to conflict. But that all depends on what you believe. The question we need to ask is, how do your beliefs motivate you to treat people who disagree with you? And I can't answer for other religions or worldviews, but for followers of Jesus, here's the answer. Jesus served us even when we disagreed with him. Jesus sought our good even when we opposed him. Jesus loved us even when we hated him. And so we're going to do the same thing for other people, no matter what their views are. We don't treat people with gentleness and respect because it's a good strategy for getting our message heard. We do it because it's at the heart of the way of Jesus, who Jesus calls us to be. We live in an uncivil age. It feels like everybody, everybody's just yelling about stuff all the time. And it feels hard to talk about anything really important. But it doesn't have to be this way. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, I hope that you would at least take this part of his message seriously. We don't, we don't have to avoid talking about the big questions, even in public. Let's just do it with gentleness and respect, like Jesus would. We're going to sing a final song here. As we do that, we're going to uh, receive our gifts and our offerings that are expressions of thanks to God for what he's done. Uh, let's pray as we get started. God, again, I, I want to praise you and thank you that you take our questions seriously. These are, these are hard things. We've got to wrestle. We've got to think hard. God, I pray that you would keep moving in us, teaching us what you want uh, us to hear uh, as we go throughout this week, that we keep pondering these things. 
God, I, I pray again for people who are searching and seeking. I pray that you would uh, honor that, that seeking and that you would reveal yourself to them, that you would make yourself known to them. Uh, God, I, I pray that you would uh, teach us how to be uh, humble and gentle and respectful people no matter what we're talking about, uh, that, that no matter what our disagreements are, that people would always walk away uh, feeling that they have been loved uh, and heard and understood. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.